Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we welcome the triumphant return of former NSCP board chair and all-around compliance expert, Craig Watanabe, director of IA Compliance at DFPG Investments, to help us analyze some recent comments from SEC Chair Gensler around cybersecurity and provide some easy, practical steps that firms can take to help enhance the cybersecurity measures inside their own firms. In our headline section, we look at the new NSCP firm and CCO liability framework and its broader application to the industry. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where we examine what an 80s classic song from Mike and the Mechanics and the life of John Madden can teach us about being the best compliance officer and CCO for our respective firms. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, as noted in the Wall Street Journal, Compliance Week, Hedge Fund Law Report, Corporate Secretary, Law 360, and many other compliance-related publications. On January 10th of 2022, the NSCP released its firm and CCO liability framework. Over the past year, the NSCP, through its Regulatory Advisory Committee, reviewed the issue of Chief Compliance Officer liability, and to provide an industry perspective, the NSCP conducted member surveys to assess members' views on CCO liability and CCO empowerment and resources. As the premier financial industry organization that educates and advocates on behalf of compliance professionals, the NSCP recognized its unique position to examine the practical challenges faced by CCOs as part of the larger governance structure at regulated entities and provide context that went beyond the technical aspects of compliance as it relates to CCO liability. The results of the surveys demonstrate how there are widespread common concerns from compliance professionals that they may find themselves personally liable in circumstances they regard as unreasonable. More than half, 53%, fear facing personal liability where compliance, quote, acted negligently rather than recklessly. Two-thirds worry about worry compliance professionals may face personal liability for having relied on inaccurate data from another source and 63% fear personal liability will be imposed where compliance, quote, did not participate in the violations caused by the company or other executives. Using these and other metrics as a baseline, the Regulatory Advisory Committee developed the NSCP Firm and CCO Liability Framework. Quote, to more effectively address the issue of CCO liability, the NSCP believes it is necessary to focus on the larger context of the compliance function within firms and to do so earlier in regulatory reviews, whether during examinations or enforcement investigations. The NSCP framework asks a series of questions to be considered by regulators regarding a CCO's, a CCO's liability when a compliance failure has occurred. Answering yes to any of these questions mitigates against the CCO's liability. These include things like, did the CCO have nominal rather than actual responsibility, ability, or authority to affect the violative conduct? Was there insufficient support from firm leadership to compliance, including, for example, insufficient resources for the CCO to affect the violative conduct? And a final example, if the firm made misstatements or omitted material information, Did the CCO have nominal rather than actual responsibility, ability, or authority for reviewing or verifying that information? The NSCP framework 
provides a practical approach to CCO liability, which complements the New York City Bar Association white paper on CCO liability. And read together, they both provide real-world perspective regarding perceived CCO liability issues and offer guidance to regulators, CCOs, and firms regarding a legal framework for analyzing actual CCO liability while promoting investor protection and market integrity. What's the practical takeaway here? Well, I'm clearly a bit of a homer, <laughs> but I believe the NSCP framework really does provide a practical approach to CCO liability. And it really does provide that guidance that I think many regulators and chief compliance officers and firms can benefit from in a way that gives them a bit of a framework or a roadmap into the kinds of things that the CCO should have at the firm if they're really going to be able to help run an effective compliance program. This, all of this, helps, of course, promote investor protection and market integrity. I'll also note that the NSCP credits SEC Commissioner Peirce as helping to provide the spark that led to the Regulatory Advisory Committee taking up the mantle to develop the NSCP framework. As demonstrated in her speech at the NSCP National Conference in 2020 and on episode 10 of this very podcast in January of 2021, Commissioner Peirce is passionate about advancing the conversation of CCO liability, a sentiment which many of the listeners to this show I'm sure appreciate very much. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome back to the Compliance and Context podcast, Mr. Craig Watanabe. Craig is a former NSCP board chair uh, uh, and very active member on many of the NSCP forums, as I'm sure our, many of our listeners could attest. And in addition to his wide expertise in a variety of different compliance areas, one of the uh, topics in particular that is near and dear to Craig's heart is the issues uh, surrounding cybersecurity and telework. And a little over a year ago, we had Craig on the show to really dig into the weeds of this as we continued uh, at that time, even in January of 2021, to navigate the ongoing pandemic. Well, a little bit of deja vu. It's <laughs> now uh, uh, early part of 20, you know, 2022, and here we are again. And so we wanted to bring Craig back in to really not only give us an update on uh, maybe some tips and tricks that we can help uh, folks that are going to be going through the teleworking process, but we're actually going to start by looking at some of the issues around cybersecurity and some of the other items that we initially addressed during that talk, but there's certainly been an increased focus in this space. Um, it feels like it the, the focus in the cybersecurity area really never stops to uh, uh, keep getting greater. But even just a couple days ago, SEC Chair Gensler, in a speech delivered uh, to the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, their annual Securities Regulation Institute conference, uh, laid out some potential rule changes that would help strengthen existing cybersecurity hygiene and incident reporting disclosures for financial sector participants, including registered investment advisors and broker-dealers. He indicated that the, uh, and to enhance the disclosures made to clients and customers regarding data breaches and to enhance existing cyber risk disclosure requirements for public companies with the goal of ultimately increasing the transparency of many of these cybersecurity practices. And so it's interesting because I think, you know, public companies right now 
are already required to disclose if they've had a, a ransomware attack or cybersecurity incident and customer data is stolen. Gensler said that, you know, the SEC might issue similar rules on how to update those disclosures when such cyber events occur. And I would commend people to a Compliance Week article uh, by Aaron Nicodemus that, that describes some of these different incidents. But one of the things that's interesting, too, about Gensler's comments is that he indicated the SEC is mulling changes to Regulation SP, right? The 22-year-old rule which requires broker dealers and investment companies and investment advisors to protect uh, customer records and information. And Gensler indicated that this rule should likely be modernized and expanded to uh, consider the increasing sophisticated types of cyber attacks that regulated entities are facing. And so I guess as we kick off this conversation today, Craig, my first question for you is going to be around this issue of cybersecurity and, and maybe just a, a, a brief reaction to some of Chair Gensler's comments the other day. Yeah, well, thank you for the introduction, Patrick, and it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So uh, with regard to cybersecurity, I'm going to go so far as to say that for most firms that do a risk assessment, cybersecurity is almost always at the top or near the top of the list in terms of risks. And I think that's going to be the case for some time for this foreseeable future. So it's a big risk for everyone. It's a big risk for the industry. And I think Chair Gensler um, is on the right track. You know, the SEC is consistently, you know, been emphasizing every year when we get the uh, examination priorities letter. We haven't gotten it for 2022, and I was surprised that we haven't gotten it yet. But when we do, we know that cybersecurity is going to be one of the examination priorities. But what he did in his speech two days ago is, uh, in my opinion, he was casting a broader net and trying to really not only upgrade the, uh, the rules and the Regulation SP, because I, I think Regulation SP is somewhat of a misnomer because the S stands for safeguarding and the P stands for privacy. But if you hmm. ask most people, Reg SP, oh, yeah, privacy. We, we kind of forget Section 30, which is right. the safeguarding part of the rule. And that's where all cybersecurity regulation basically resides. It's in Regulation SP Section 30. And, and it, it is high time that mm -hmm. we do get some rulemaking there. But the thing that really struck me was not only casting a wider net, and of course, broker dealers and investment advisors were already squarely in that net. So that part doesn't really affect us that much. But what did really strike me was um, what he emphasized in his speech was a responsibility to monitor third-party service providers that are not registered with the SEC. Mm -hmm. Now, we've always known that that's a responsibility. Going back to 2015, you know, the SEC basically listed six points that they were emphasizing six areas within cybersecurity and vendor due diligence was one of the six. So it's always been on the SEC radar. And as a matter of fact, the very first SEC enforcement case under Reg SP Section 30 for cybersecurity failures was RT Jones back in 2015. And for them, it involved a third party service provider. So this that was nothing new, but I think the fact that he brought it up and the fact that it's likely to appear in updated rulemaking of Reg SP Section 30, or maybe even an entirely new rule, I, I think the industry needs to take note of that. And mm -hmm. so that's something that we should pay attention to. Yeah. Thank you for 
for that feedback and appreciate you highlighting a couple of those items because I, I think I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. We're, we're going to see more activity in this area from the SEC, and it probably is high tide for that, for us to um, get maybe a little bit more uh, guidance and guardrails up for our regulated entities to really start to make sure that they're properly addressing some of those items. Speaking of addressing some of those items, one of the things we talked about on our last uh, during our last interview was an article that you had published in the May 2020 edition of Currents. And in that um, edition of Currents, you listed the 12 tips for teleworking cybersecurity. And if you'll humor me for just a second, uh, one of the, the, the number one tip that you had in there was to make sure employees are not using outdated hardware and software. And I think that is so important. You clearly listed that as the number one tip that you could give any firm as it related to uh, teleworking cybersecurity. And so my first question for you is, why (laughs) did you list that as number one? And, you know, what are uh, some things that at least you're seeing that are happening out in the industry that, that might, you know, impact firms in this space? Really good question, because I think if you read a lot of guidance on cybersecurity from multiple regulators and you read articles and and you listen to other podcasts, webcasts, you know, listen to conference sessions on cybersecurity, you don't often hear uh, people emphasizing the importance of upgrading hardware and software. You maybe they'll address patch management but not specifically upgrading hardware and software. And in my research on cybersecurity, what I've come to understand is that threats are constantly evolving at a very rapid rate, but so are cyber defenses. Right. And those cyber defenses typically, you know, are built into the latest hardware and software. And so one point that I've come to appreciate is that a four-year-old computer is probably still very functional, very usable, probably still does everything that you want it to do. But the difference between that four-year-old computer and a brand new computer is going to be primarily in security. The newer Mm -hmm. equipment is going to have just much more robust security. And that's something that I came to appreciate, something that I don't think has been given enough emphasis. It hasn't been emphasized by the SEC or FINRA. Right. Or in in other guidance that I've seen, that's why I chose to elevate it to number one, because honestly, in my opinion, I put it number one because I think it is probably one of the single most important things you can do to improve your cybersecurity is to make sure you have up to date hardware and software containing the the newest and best cyber defenses that have been developed to combat the latest cyber attacks. Mm hmm. It's certainly from a, I, you're, and I would, again, I would commend folks that are listening to the show to go and check out Craig's article. It's a incredible article with invaluable insights. As Craig alludes to, he made it number one. And in, in that recommendation of that, inside that tip, one of the things he talks about that I think is important for firms to recognize is like, typically the cost of the upgrade is going to be negligible. And yet it, like you say, the the systems and the hardware that you're using 
they're just like like you said cyber attackers are updating their technology so are the defenses right so ultimately that's often going to be your best and number one and first defense of mitigating or hopefully you know knock on wood even preventing those cyber attacks from occurring and again at a very at a very negligible cost for you know it's something that every firm small mid large can do to really help enhance their compliance program Right. So I want to revisit a concept that I talked about a year ago on your podcast, and I think it's worth revisiting. But the to understand the basic model of cybersecurity, which has always been the fortress model. Mm -hmm. And in the fortress model, the idea is you create this fortress, everything on the inside of the fortress, all the interior is safe. And you try to keep all the unknowns and all the bad stuff out. That model works really well when you have a centralized work environment and you have centralized IT. It's a perfectly reasonable and it's a very usable and very functional model. That model, however, doesn't work as well in a remote and hybrid work environment. And that's why I wrote that article on teleworking, right? Mm -hmm. When you have people working outside of the office at home, maybe even on their own personally owned phone or their home computer, Right now, the, the Fortress model doesn't work as well. And so what I talked about is a concept called the, the endpoint security model, where I think that model is going to replace the Fortress model. Right. And in the endpoint security model, the emphasis is not on the Fortress. The emphasis is on securing each individual device, which is an endpoint that can access the network. That endpoint can be a phone a tablet, a work computer, a home computer, a laptop, anything that ultimately is a device that will connect to the uh, network, uh, you want to focus on that security. And it's not only a concept. I think that in the last year since we did the podcast a year ago, we've seen some definite changes from Microsoft. In November of last year, just two months ago, they introduced Windows 11. Mm. Right. And Windows 11 uh, was a really interesting upgrade for a number of reasons. First, I think that in all prior versions of Windows operating systems and even going back to DOS, Microsoft has really favored usability and functionality over security. Now, that's not to say that they were negligent with regard to security. I'm not meaning to imply that. But there is a trade-off between usability and security, and I believe that that trade-off favored usability. Mm -hmm. Now, with Windows 11, I've looked at the functionality, I've looked at the usability, and there's not a whole lot there in terms of functionality and improvements. It doesn't do a whole lot more than Windows 10 does, but what it does do is it provides a much safer operating environment. So I'm going to characterize Windows 11 as a primarily security upgrade. And so I think what's interesting is for us to maybe flush out what some of that security is, because eventually most of us that use um, Microsoft and, you know, that the probably the only other operating systems out there would be Apple and maybe a few users use Linux. Yeah. But most of us use, you know, the, the Windows environment. Most of us haven't upgraded to Windows 11 yet. Right. And even if we do, 
the, these security enhancements are are transparent. You probably won't even know because mm -hmm. they're operating in the background. But I think to know what they are and to appreciate that and to sort of piggyback on a statement that Chair Gensler made in his speech two days ago, he said that cybersecurity is a team sport. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just the responsibility of compliance. It's not just the responsibility of IT. It is the responsibility of each and every user within the firm, which is pretty much everyone. Right. Right. And where we can have important input as a team member in our responsibility with regard to the overall security posture of the firm is to understand and have a philosophy. If you have buy in at your firm that, yes, you know, we want to maintain up-to-date hardware and software force, and we're going to consider security in yeah. our upgrade cycle, right? Not just usability and functionality, but we're going to consider security as well. Uh, then I think what happens is upgrade cycles shorten. Right. You know, computers are generally good for like seven, eight years before sure. they stop functioning and doing all the things you want them to do. You can keep right. a computer for seven or eight years before really, you know, you say, oh, you know what? It's really time to upgrade because this computer's getting old <laughs> and it's just not doing what I needed to do. Right. But in terms of security, you know, I think that's way too long. Right. The difference between just Windows 10 and Windows 11 is significant. So, man, that's really great feedback. And, and I think it, it actually, it sparks a couple really important questions because at least in my mind and i i you know would be interested to hear your thoughts if you agree with this but in my mind that that has to be one of the first times microsoft like the, the well microsoft and i'll say similar type companies have really in my mind really started to prioritize security over usability certainly that speaks to the fact that these cybersecurity issues that continue to plague kind of our industry and related industries is becoming even a greater consideration that's starting to really influence some of the other you know key stakeholders in that but i guess you know one of the things that it sounds like you're getting at when you talk about some of the different operating systems and other is that does Windows 11, are they going to require a certain baseline when it comes to your hardware that you're using? Or like, are there other elements of that product in the fact that it is prioritizing security over usability that are going to impact the, the, the firms for, for many of our listeners? Great question. And I think it's, it's going to be very, it's going to be very interesting for the listeners to kind of see when we pop the hood and see what's under there. And we talk about Windows 11. And I totally agree with you that I think there has been a paradigm shift at Microsoft and other big vendors with a, an emphasize, emphasis on security. That's clear to me. You know, I don't think Microsoft would have done these things prior, but uh, they have implemented some aspects in Windows 11 that clearly favor security over usability and functionality. And the, the first one of which you mentioned is a hardware component. So Windows 11 is the first operating system that is not solely software. There are certain hardware components required to mm. operate Windows 11. What that means is that any computer that's over four years old probably can't be upgraded to Windows 11 because it doesn't have the requisite hardware, 
right? And in particular, what I'm talking about is something called a, a trusted platform module or TPM that computers made in the last four years will typically have, and it's a chip on the motherboard. Its sole purpose is hardware security, and it's very robust. It works really well. So here's, here's one thing. I've described Windows 11 as an evolution in security, not a revolution. And I think this is important because there isn't anything really brand new. You know, there wasn't something, you know, like, you know, an epic new uh, creation in Windows 11. The components of Windows 11, if you think of it in terms of its components, the components of Windows 11 have all been around for at least three years, right? What Microsoft has done, you could put all these components on Windows 10. So if you wanted to build out Windows 10, you could, you could um, implement all of these components on a Windows 10 platform. But what Windows 11 does it requires these components. So it's, it forces the adoption. What Microsoft found is that, that the, the functionality that uses the trusted platform module, the uptake in the industry has been minuscule. You've got this great security out there, right? But nobody's using it. And so they said, well, the answer is we have to make it mandatory. And that's what they did in Windows 11. Now, that's going to anger a lot of people. They're going to get a lot of pushback saying, now Microsoft's forcing me to buy a new computer. You know, my computer is perfectly good. It's only five years old. It still does everything I want. Now I have to buy a new computer because I can't upgrade to Windows 11. Well, to appease those folks, Microsoft made a commitment that they will support Windows 10 through 2025. Okay, but I, I don't think we want to be one of those folks. I think what we want to <laughs> no. be is we want to be one of the people that pops the hood and goes, whoa, you know, look at all this new stuff here under the hood. And this, you know, I want this, right? So, so let's talk about what Microsoft calls chip to cloud protection and the importance of that hardware security. That hardware security is really robust. And it acts as sort of like that. One of the tips that I talked about a year ago was to enable two-factor authentication. Two-factor right. authentication is native in Windows 11. And that second factor is a hardware verification that comes from that trusted platform module. So that's why Microsoft calls it chip to cloud, because that chip performs a vital verification function in addition to your other authentication, whether that authentication is a username and password. And I think even those are kind of becoming passe now. Most yeah. of us are using either facial recognition mm. or fingerprints or some biometrics. Mm -hmm. And honestly, um, that was another tip that I had a year ago. The biometrics are superior to sure. username and password, and they're more convenient. Once you start mm -hmm. using biometrics, you're never going to go back to a username and password. <laughs> and, the, and, and the biometrics, they're not only easier, more convenient, they're stronger. So there's no reason to use usernames and passwords. But in addition to the biometric, you have a hardware verification coming from the chip, right, which provides a lot of security. So just how much security? Well, in, in Windows testing, they found that computers uh, enabled with Windows 11 compared to Windows 10 Pro um, had 60% greater resistance to malware. Wow. Now, I know 60% might not sound like an appreciable or earth-shaking figure, but that's huge. It's, it's really an appreciable improvement over Windows 10. Yeah. 
One of the things you mentioned, and, and again, for those who may be less uh, savvy in the area of information security, cybersecurity, IT, computers, et cetera, you know, when you say something is native, what, what you're getting at is that it's built in, right? I mean, it's it's something that you you will need to, in fact, start to ascribe to this process as part of your day-to-day in order to functionally use the in order to functionally use a computer is that fair to say exactly so i've always kind of been a cyber geek (laughs) (laughs) and and going back i think i bought my first yubi key about 10 years ago and and uh, most people don't know what a yubi key is but it kind of looks like a thumb drive a, a, a usb flash drive but it's not it's it's a security device. It's a hard piece of hardware security. And so what I always did is you, you could not boot my computer, you know, with biometrics or with username and password unless that YubiKey was plugged into the USB drive. So that was my two-factor authentication. I've been yeah. using hardware security for 10 years. And, yeah. and I'm a big believer in it going back to the YubiKey, right? And, and my Coinbase account, I have a hardware wallet. Same thing. It looks like a flash mm-hmm. drive, you know, but that hardware wallet contains my credentials to access mm-hmm. my Coinbase account. And so I think that, you know, the more I studied hardware security, the more I've come to believe that, yeah, this is really robust and a good way to go. And obviously, Microsoft agrees because mm-hmm. they've made it now incorporated and you don't have to have an external YubiKey or hardware wallet it's already on the motherboard. Right. They have this TPM module chip right, right on the motherboard, and it's doing the same thing. You don't need an external hardware device. It's mm-hmm. all built into the motherboard now, and it's being incorporated in the uh, software and operating system for account verification. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk, to walk, uh, I'll say, you know, uh, legal practitioners and compliance officers like me who are on the, the less sophisticated side through that. And, and again, even your additional commentary around, you know, while Microsoft is clearly rolling this out, because again, as you state, you know, they, they, it, you get the feeling like they are starting to prioritize security over usability. I do like the fact, and I guess I would say I appreciate of Microsoft that, you know, they are going to support Windows 10 until 2025, although as you articulate, and and I think as we both would would probably get behind, firms should not wait that long. <laughs> when, when you've got technology like this that can benefit your own internal cybersecurity controls by such a wide measure, by by you know getting an upgrade is the, the the upgrade to Windows 11, you know, don't sit on your hands for this. For again, when, when you compare it in the grand scheme of things, is probably a pretty negligible cost. Exactly. Now, you know, here's the rub. The rub is I've talked to a lot of IT people, and most of them are resistant to Windows 11. It's new. It's scary. They don't know how to deal with it yet. And they're going to say, no, we can't upgrade yet. And, and, and I'm cool with that for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think, if, I think if they understand, you know, why it's important, and if they appreciate the additional security that comes with upgrading to Windows 11 and they make it a priority yeah. to uh, get on board. And if, if everyone has the same vision 
right? And that vision includes, you know, making sure that we have upgraded hardware and software. Everyone, remember, this is a team sport. So everyone on the team, right, <laughs> has right. to be a team player. And we all have to agree yeah. uh, that, you know, upgraded hardware and software is really important to the team playing a better game. That's right. The, um, I, I I like that analogy a lot and I agree with you. And look, if you need more ammunition, I've got a, a follow-up question to, to ask you here to say, but if you need even more ammunition to help uh, pull some of those IT people maybe in the direction that you want, you know, look, Chair Gensler <laughs> just gave you some pretty good fodder at the speech he gave at the Northwestern School of Law recently, where again, it's clear that the SEC for those regulated entities is going to start taking a much more, a much harder stance on some of the stuff. And so firms need to start, you know, uh, rightfully so responding in, in due course. Well, one of the other, you know, speaking of helping pull people along in the right direction of uh, awareness and, um, and the importance of this issue, you know, one of the other uh, things that I think is so important in, in, you know, talking, you talked about it in your article, but it's all around the idea of training and what we should do with our employees. And so I think when you probably originally wrote your article, and even I'll say last, you know, January of 2021, when you and I spoke, we weren't sure how long the pandemic was going to continue to be part of our day to day, but it has continued. And I think it's important for us, given the way that professional life has likely, you know, when we'll, we can talk about this later, too, has likely been changed forever as a result of the pandemic. Firms are going to need to continue to do more in this area when it comes to training employees. So my question for you would be, what are some of the uh, best practices or other tips that you have when it comes to user awareness training, cybersecurity training, and, and, um, and other similar type subjects? Yeah, that's a great question. But before we get into that, I want to um, lay a little bit of foundation here with regard to training, because training has really been somewhat of a conundrum for compliance. Training is a tool in our toolbox. I submit that training can be one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. Sadly, however, for most firms, it's not. So there is a definite appreciation for effective training. And that's not that's easier said than done. Okay, so it's really easy to say, oh, do training. Right. But there's 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 degrees of training. If you just sign right. up for, you know, an online course and everyone has to sit through this 30 minute course and answer questions, you know, most people who have to sit through that kind of treat it as an annoyance. Right. That's by and was it effective? Probably not. Right. Uh, you know, whereas training that's really well done can move the needle. And why it's important is there is a significant human element to cybersecurity. Approximately 70% of all breaches entail a compromised user, right? And so to address that human element, that human element is addressed through training, right? Now, I have some really, I think, insights into user awareness training. The first insight, I've done a lot of training for a number of years now on cybersecurity. One of the aha moments that I had was first, I realized that it's got to be done live, right? So I've done recordings and I've done live sessions. And I think the live sessions are much 
more effective, much better received. So my personal opinion, I only do live training because I think it's the most effective. That's been sort of proven to me when I go back after a period of time to the firms where I've done the training and I see how effective was it. I take polls of how many people implemented the things that I talked about, how many people are doing the things that I tried to train right? And there was no question in my mind that there's a much better egg uptake and the acceptance is much better when I do live training. So that's number one. I learned that live training is for me the only way to go. Now, that doesn't mean that's the way that it's going to be for everyone, right? Uh, because there are some online training, for example, I know in the article I mentioned, no before, right? And I'm a big fan of no before. I think they're great. They don't do live training. It's all it's all video, but they're really good. Right. They, and I think it is effective. And the nice thing about no before is you don't have to think it's effective. You can measure the effectiveness. And that's right. You have a metric. You can measure how effective it is when you do your monthly phishing campaigns. You know, and so that's a really, really nice feature mm -hmm. of no before. Now, the second aha moment that I had when I do user awareness training is I do the training in the context of employees' personal devices and home computers. Because what I found is, you know, when it's personal to them, I'm talking about your phone. I'm talking about your home computer. And I'm not talking about the company's data and our clients. I'm talking about your personal data, <laughs> your bank right. accounts, all yeah. of your financial information, mm -hmm. right? it gets a lot more personal and employees are a lot more engaged when I do the training in that context. And here's the beauty. The principles of cybersecurity are pretty much the same. Whether we're talking about cyber hygiene in the workplace or cyber hygiene at home, mm -hmm. it's pretty much the same principles. Mm -hmm. And so I always do the training in the context of personal devices and home computers. I have found it much, much more effective than doing training on the same principles in the workplace, in a workplace environment, right? So just that simple change of context and making it personal, to me, really was the aha moment when I found, ah, now I really understand how to do compelling and effective user mm -hmm. awareness training, number yeah. one, live, number two, in the context of their personal devices and home computers. It, it makes so much sense. Um, that is, I mean, again, a really uh, good, uh, solid uh, you know, feedback for many of our listeners. And the personal computers thing definitely strikes me as something that, that would be in some ways a bit of a game changer in how an employee can think about it. Because if you think about like some of the more traditional training that you're doing, you know, it's just like, oh, this is the training to like help protect my employer's stuff, you know, and it's like, you know, people kind of maybe get lost in some of the doldrums of that aspect of it, of that it's somebody else's stuff. Like, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm more than happy to gamble your money, Craig. <laughs> oh, wait, but, <laughs> wait, but wait a minute, but you want me to tell, Oh wait, it's my bank account or it's my personal information. Oh, okay. Well then never mind. I'll pay attention. Um, so that, uh, that, that totally ma makes sense. Let me ask you another uh, thing that that was this is actually this phrase of of art or term of art was mentioned in the it was mentioned in that same Compliance Week article I mentioned uh, I mentioned at the top of the call and I've seen this term a lot and I think probably some of our listeners have also seen it but I think it'd be good to maybe flush out and maybe even give a couple examples of what of what what you mean by but so cyber hygiene 
right? And, and uh, really having really good cyber hygiene and and what that means and, and kind of like, you know, if, if you would, you know, what is cyber hygiene, I guess, just like generally speaking, and then what, what are some, what, what's one or two things that you could point to that would demonstrate a firm that has really good cyber hygiene? Yeah, so I, I think the, the best example that I can think of to illustrate cyber hygiene is using public Wi-Fi. Everyone knows you're not supposed to use public Wi-Fi for sensitive content. Everyone knows that. And yet people do. <laughs> right. Right. We know that. I know that. Everyone knows that. People still use public Wi-Fi. Why? Because it's convenient and it's free. <laughs> right. Right. And so we can say, no, don't do it. No, don't do it until you're blue in the face and they're still going to do it. And so rather than saying, no, don't do it. When I do the training and I talk about cyber hygiene, I say, don't do that, do this. And so I talk about, you know, getting a Wi-Fi hotspot on your phone, you know, and um, when I do the company training at my own firm, I tell people, if you don't have Wi-Fi hotspot on your phone, because it costs $5 a month additional, I'll pay for it. <laughs> I want right. you to have it. Yeah. Cost is not an issue. You know, to me, it's only $60 a year, $5 a month. No problem. I'll pay for it. But I want you to have, you know, the uh, capability of using your phone as a Wi-Fi hotspot so that you're not on the public Wi-Fi, right? I also had a couple of, of the, uh, you know, the wireless pucks. Sure. Right? The, the mobile Wi-Fi hotspot pucks. And I had a couple of them. And anyone who's going to be on vacation, if they wanted to borrow one of those pucks, you know, it was on the company account, they could take it with them, you know? And so we he said, you know, don't use public Wi-Fi. If you're going to be on vacation here, you know, use your phone. Or if you want to take the puck, you know, you can take the puck with you. And, and so that made it much more effective. You know, people actually borrowed the pucks and people sure. actually used the, the, the um, mobile hotspot on their phone. Yeah. The other thing is if you don't want to do that, there are safe ways to use public Wi-Fi if you use a VPN. And here's the beauty. These VPNs are free. You know, the one that I've been using for a number of years, actually, there's two. I use Avast and I use Hotspot Shield, right? Avast costs me $25 a year. So it's not free. It's $25 mm -hmm. a year. Yeah. Hotspot Shield is free. Hmm. Okay. And what those do is they, those enable you to use the public Wi-Fi for one purpose, and that is con connecting to your um, VPN uh, provider. Mm -hmm. And then from the VPN provider, that connection is secured. And then from the VPN provider is where you're going to go and visit and do whatever work you need to do on the internet. But it's oh, all secure yeah. because the only part exposed on the public Wi-Fi is the VPN connection to the VPN provider, Hotspot Shield or Avast. Wow. Okay. And so that's another way to use public Wi-Fi for free. You know, and, uh, you know, when people understand, oh, okay, yeah, don't use public Wi-Fi. But when I enable them and show them, say, download Hotspot Shield or, you know, you want wireless on your uh, hotspot on your phone, I'll give you a $60 bonus. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay? And, you know, then then people will do it. Yeah, right. 
So just like, uh, you know, pr- practicing good, good oral hygiene at home, you want to practice good, good, good cybersecurity hygiene with your uh, firm employees and, and as part of your compliance program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there's a good way to kind of measure this. If you want to create a metric, a good way to measure it, pretty much most firms will use an email service provider like Smarsh or Global Relay or some way to monitor emails and not just, you know, uh, archive them, but to monitor them, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you can monitor is for um, unsecured attachments, right? Oh, sure. This is another area where, you know, it's a matter of cyber hygiene, you know, people attaching documents that they shouldn't to an open email, right? And they know they're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to attach, you know, sensitive client information with social security numbers and birth dates and all that stuff as an attachment in an email. You're not supposed to do that. They know that. Yeah. But they do it because it's convenient. Right. right. I was going to say they choose convenience. Yeah. So what we need to do is we need to offer an alternative. And these alternatives aren't quite as convenient. And sometimes there's problems because, you know, clients, some clients who aren't real cyber savvy, just aren't able to get in and, and navigate the secure email. So I get it. Right. But one of the things that you can do at your firm is you can create a metric in the last month or in the last year or whatever time period you want to use, how, what percentage of emails had unsecured attachments with non-public information in them? In other words, violated your firm's policy, right? Mm-hmm. What is that your baseline number? Now do the training, talk about using secure email, you know, uh, and really encourage people, make it a point. You know, and of course, repetition is the mother of all learning. Don't just tell people once, tell them again and again and again. And you can maybe even share with them what the percentages are. But if you do that consistently, I have to imagine that you're going to see a measurable improvement in that number. Right. That number is going to go down. And if that number doesn't go down, you can track it to which users are not, are not, not adhering to your policy. Yeah. And yeah. instead of doing company-wide training, you do specific one-on-one training. You know who is not adhering to your secure email policy and you do one-on-one training with mm-hmm. them. And if you have to escalate, you escalate. Yeah. But I can assure you that's effective training. And you oh, can sure. measure the effectiveness by establishing your baseline doing the training and then being able to measure the improvement. What a great thing to show. I mean, again, we, you know, I think, so that's uh, another item because I had this thought earlier when you were describing the windows 11, the upgrades uh, to the technology with windows 11. And then now again, as you articulate there, you know, one of the key things that we love to be able to highlight that we talk about on the show sometimes is, you know, oftentimes one of the things that we're really called to do during an SEC exam is to show the kind that one we're being thoughtful about right these kinds of issues that are occurring and that clearly impact our business and operations and two to be able to demonstrate to the staff the the enhancements that you've made the 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 ways that you are improving your compliance program and and in this particular case in this instance right with with cybersecurity what we're doing to help protect the very most sensitive information of our underlying clients, right? There is no more sensitive information out there than bank account numbers and social security numbers, right? And so for us to be able 
to uh, uh, highlight look, we made an upgrade to Windows 11. Look at how these different things that's come up as part of that upgrade. Look at these additional security protocols that now we're able to use as part of our firm that ultimately enhance the information security and the privacy of our client sensitive information. And another way, right? Think of if you are able to be so surgical in the way that you can measure the results of the training that you're doing and have really good follow-up with the, you know, those individuals at your firm who maybe are a bit more cavalier <laughs> in their approach to these same issues. What an incredible thing to be able to show the staff. Absolutely. So a, a couple questions, and these are going to be maybe as we close out, but and again, Craig, this is fantastic, uh, fantastic insights for our audience. I'm going to get a little bit, I'm going to go back out. We, we've gone into some of the more granular level details about ways that firms can help improve their cybersecurity controls and their compliance programs in this area. But let's talk about, because I think no one maybe, how could anybody have ever known? I don't think anybody could have known how long, you know, the pandemic was going to last or how it would continue to impact our day-to-day it's it's obviously it's still here. We're we're dealing with it, but even when glass half full, <laughs> the pandemic ends. You know, in the near term, let's say, or whenever it does end, are there certain things about cybersecurity and teleworking that that you think carry on even after that? I mean, do do you think that some of what we have experienced over the last call it almost two full years now? That, that that continue in perpetuity even after the most dangerous threats of the pandemic subside. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think I already shared with you one, and that is this has been really helpful for me. But just to understand my model of cybersecurity being an endpoint security model, so I'm focusing on endpoint security, and I actually have one of the tips. One of the twelve tips is focused on endpoint security, and I talked a little bit more detail about endpoint security, and I even mentioned a particular product and vendor that I've used um, that provides endpoint security. It's maybe mm -hmm. beyond the scope of you know our discussion here, but it's in the article. Yeah. But just in general, I think just having that idea that this framework and this understanding of a philosophy, right? Now, when I drill down into the individual items of cybersecurity, they all fall into place under this framework and under this model of the endpoint security model. And then when you combine with that, you know, understanding the human element and how it all comes together. I think one of the hardest things about cybersecurity is it is an immense and vast topic. Mm -hmm. And it involves a topic with which many people are not really comfortable, and that is technology. You know, there's just a lot of people that aren't really, really tech savvy, right? A lot of really, really excellent compliance officers aren't tech savvy. We all have strengths and weaknesses, right? But that's just a fact that a lot of people are not tech savvy. And mm -hmm. so it's hard to kind of get your arms around cybersecurity. But when you have general principles, when you have a philosophy, Right. And when you can, you know, maybe skip some of the more general guidance from the SEC, mm -hmm. like do vendor due diligence. Well, yeah, it's really easy to say that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do. Sure. Right? And that's what I tried to do in the 12 tips is get down to the practical level. You know, instead of saying, well, let's let's address cybersecurity. You know, 
what I jumped right to was, hey, upgrade your hardware and software. Single best thing you can do to improve right. your protection. <laughs> you know, right. that, that's actionable, right? right? Yeah. That's a suggestion totally. that's actionable. You know what to do. You know how to do it, mm -hmm. right? And it's pretty straightforward. You don't have to be a tech geek. You don't have to understand <laughs> IT, right? Upgrade your hardware and security. Get new computers with Windows 11. Done. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's easy. I like so it. So I kind of take that approach to cybersecurity. I just think it's it's more effective in helping people you know, really get their arms around it and really understand, okay, now I know what to do. And I have some things that I can, that I can do to, you know, move the needle. Mm -hmm. uh, because what I found in my experience is a lot of people when faced with a really immense subject, uh, this happens when people try to tackle risk management for the first time or cybersecurity, you know, or they get into, you know, a trade review for the first time. They get mired in all of the details and it's such an immense subject that they get this paralysis of analysis and nothing ever really gets done. Yeah. Maybe there's a lot of talk. Maybe there's a lot of action, a whole lot of planning, but not a whole lot getting done. Yeah. Yeah. And cybersecurity can definitely be in that camp. And that's why I think, you know, uh, it's important to have, you know, definable steps that are achievable actionable and can be done to show immediate improvement. Yeah. And especially as again, the, you know, the teleworking, the remote work, the hybrid work environments continue. I, I agree with you. I think that is going to be so important to be able to develop some of those actionable steps. Actually, that's a per actionable step is a perfect segue into the last question that I had for you, which is in the unfortunate situation, in the unfortunate circumstance where you might have a cybersecurity incident occur, I think hopefully most firms know by now, right, you should have an incident response plan in place to help you to help provide a roadmap of what you're going to do in that kind of situation. But I guess my question for you would be with regard to incident response plan or with, with regard to uh, situations, you know, where, and maybe even in the insurance way, like realm, right? Are, are there things that with regard to an IRP or that insurance that you think can be super helpful for firms as they're looking to try to tackle this really complicated subject area? Absolutely. So incident response planning is one of the other six components of cybersecurity that was emphasized by the SEC in 2015. Right. So they said you have to do vendor due diligence. You have to do uh, have an incident response plan. So that's two of the six. And it is important. But what I found is that when compliance officers say, oh, I have to do an incident response plan, what they think about is the written document, kind of the same way that they think about their business continuity plan. They think about it as the written document. And really, there should be a lot more that happens before you get to documenting it. You want to make sure that you have an effective plan in place and that the last step you're going to take is documenting it. That's true in business continuity. That's true in incident response planning for cybersecurity. And there's two components that I think are really critical and helpful, for, especially for small firms, because small firms don't have the staff, the knowledge, the, the resources that large, large firms have, right? You're going to have to rely on external resources. And, you know, we all know the benefits of having cyber liability insurance. But one of the things we think about is we think about it from the financial perspective. One thing that's really underappreciated 
is the fact that when you have cyber liability insurance and you make that first call to make a claim, right? The very first thing they're going to do is now it's their risk. Mm-hmm. And they have a vested interest in helping you remediate this breach. Right? And they have personnel on staff that are wonderfully knowledgeable and helpful. And that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate having made multiple claims on cyber liability policies is it's not just the financial support, it's that triage and that person helping remediate the response. And these people are really, really good and very knowledgeable. So that's, uh, I think, a a very much underappreciated benefit of having a cyber liability insurance policy is the fact that you will get that support in terms of helping you actually remediate the breach. Yeah. The second thing is most small firms don't have in-house IT. Some do, but most use an outside managed IT service provider. And they think, oh, if I get a breach, I'm going to call them. And I'm going to tell you, most of those vendors are small vendors. They're local. They don't have the information security expertise. They don't have the experience in dealing with breaches. So when it comes to incident response, I am a firm believer that there is a big advantage to not relying upon your managed IT service provider, but instead having a remediation specialist on retainer. Mm. And these remediation specialists are typically going to be large firms, well-known. And the advantage is a small firm might deal with maybe a breach a week, maybe a breach a month. These large firms are probably dealing with hundreds of breaches every day. Mm -hmm. They have Mm -hmm. a lot more knowledge. They have a lot more bandwidth. They interface with law enforcement. They interface with the regulators. They're really plugged in. There's a big advantage to going with a large vendor for your remediation specialist. And if you can have them on retainer, as a matter of fact, my firm has our remediation specialist on a zero fee retainer. So they didn't (laughs) even require a payment up front. It's a zero fee retainer. And if we need to invoke the remediation specialist, which we had to done because we had some breaches. Sure. When we invoke their services, it's covered under our um, cyber liability insurance. Right. So having those two things, if you have the cyber liability insurance and you have a remediation specialist on retainer, you have the two critical components of a true robust way to respond to an incident. Now, documenting your incident response plan around those two critical vendors becomes really easy and it becomes effective, not because of anything you wrote in your incident response plan, but because of the fact that you actually did the two things that are really important to making sure that you're able to respond to to an incident effectively, and that is you have the remediation vendor and you have your uh, insurance. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And I really like how you laid that out because again, you know, look, there's a lot of quotes we can talk about, you know, it's not the, it's not the destination, it's the journey kind of a thing. Right. But, but I think that is really critical here because if you go through the exercise with that cyber insurance expert, who's going to help you because they want to protect their investment, help you get as prepared as possible to mitigate and prevent any kind of cybersecurity incident how important that would be. Craig, this has been absolutely incredible. I I am so appreciative of your insight in this area and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. The final part of today's show features another segment 
of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney and will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue and highlight how it relates to the investment management industry and our securities compliance brothers and sisters. And so here we go. There is a classic 80s song known as The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. And if you don't know it, you you should, because it's a total jam. And many of our listeners that are 80s music fans will be able to tell you that there's a line in it that goes, crumpled bits of paper filled with imperfect thoughts. In the song, the line is meant to convey the struggle the singer feels to connect with his father. After his father passes, the son realizes he had a much stronger connection with his father than he had realized and he regrets not saying more when his dad was still alive. Sometimes when I hear the song, I get a a little choked up thinking of all the things I wish I could say to my own father who passed early in my teen years. But the last time I heard it, I actually felt quite happy. You see, it was days after I learned the great John Madden had also passed. And there are probably some of you who are now thinking, wait a minute, now he's talking about someone else passing away and somehow he felt happy? Also, isn't this supposed to be a compliance podcast? And don't don't worry, I'll, I'm going to get there. As crazy as it sounds to say, for those of you in our audience who don't know who John Madden is, or John Madden was, I should say, I will sum it up like this. John Madden was the most prominent figure in professional football over the last 50 years. But more than that, John Madden could take the most complicated subjects, strategies, and football schemas and nonchalantly explain them with a doink or a boom, as though he was describing them to you on a cocktail napkin from the bar stool next to you. John Madden demystified football to multiple generations of football fans. And unlike some of the disciplinarian coaches of his day, Madden didn't harp on prescriptive rules and forced actions, but rather he inspired his players to do the right thing and treated them as intelligent human beings. Sounds kind of like the actions of a really good CCO, doesn't it? Madden said, quote, Sometimes guys were disciplinarians in things that didn't make any difference. I was a disciplinarian in jumping off sides. I hated that. Being in bad position and missing tackles, those things. I wasn't, your hair has to be combed. End quote. Most important for our discussion today, my dad loved John Madden. And why was that? I think it was because, as I mentioned earlier, Madden was a coach and a teacher in his heart, constantly honing and improving his craft. Like Madden, great CCOs make great coaches and teachers too. They don't go around enforcing draconian rules and firm policies. They inspire their colleagues to do the right thing. They educate, they inform, they help everyone at the firm see the value in what they're doing and be inspired to do the right thing. As a a head coach, Madden had a a, a 7.59 winning percentage, the highest by any individual in NFL history. 
As an analyst, he won 16 Sports Emmy Awards, including 15 for Top Analyst. Madden was even credited with inventing the first downline, having the idea for the first downline on your TV screen. But Madden didn't rise to that level of achievement by having it fall on his lap. Madden was fastidious in his preparation. And because of this painstaking and meticulous planning, not only did John build up his expertise, he built up credibility with his players in the viewing public as a commentator. As a CCO, building up credibility like that is crucial to serving in your role as the compliance coach and teacher at your firm. And so now some of you are probably saying, okay, Pat, that's great. You've, you've covered the connection between John Madden and chief compliance officers, uh, but why were you happy when you heard the song, The Living Years, and what's that connection to John Madden? Well, the inspiration there, the happy thought, is because I had the thought of all the coaches I've had throughout my life, and I have been lucky to have some great ones. None have been better than my dad. And I'm so thankful for that. It's really easy these days with all of the hardships we have in our lives to dwell on the loss, to think of that thing we miss as something that's been taken away from us. But another way to look at those memories and blessings is to see them as gifts that we've received. And in that way, we can celebrate that they happened, but their absence isn't necessarily a punishment. Living in a sense of appreciation and not in a sense of what am I missing will help all of us feel a little better about our current situations. And so if there's someone out there that has been an amazing mentor or coach to you, whether professionally or personally, and they don't know it yet, or maybe it's been a while since you've told them, consider this your friendly neighborhood nudge in the right direction. The second reason is that the, the second reason that I was happy when I had I heard the song and I thought of John Madden passing is that Madden was so unmistakably great as a broadcaster and coach because he was doing what he loved. You felt that from him. And over the last two and a half years, you all have been on this journey with me as we have attempted to bring to life many of the professional issues that affect us and challenge us and help move the investment management industry forward. We have spent two and a half years together discussing different ways you can elevate the compliance programs inside your firms and hopefully, I add parenthetically, elevating yourself along the way. We've combined the technical expertise of industry thought leaders and innovators with the practical experience of doers and key decision makers. And as I promised in the first episode, hopefully you had a little fun along the way. <laughs> as we enter into the third year of the podcast, if nothing else, I hope it has served as a positive distraction amidst all the craziness that seems to permeate our world today. Some of you may know that I, I think the Tony Kornheiser Show is one of the best podcasts out there. And recently during an interview with the author Mitch Album, where Mitch actually discussed some of those same ideas of appreciation and loss I mentioned earlier, Tony said something that really resonated with me. He said that the feedback from the audience, quote, always lets you know 
that your work is being absorbed, which is all you, which is all you ask for. When you sit down to write or you sit down to talk, you don't know who the audience is. You just hope there is an audience. So finally, consider this a thank you for taking the time to join this conversation. You could spend your time doing lots of things, but we are so glad you spend it with us. And keep the feedback coming. Doing this show has been some of the most demanding and rewarding work of my life. Let's just say there are plenty of crumpled bits of paper filled with imperfect thoughts. (laughs) But no matter where you are, my goal is to meet you there. And I'm so thankful that I get to share this experience with you. As I've said on this show many times, and as the best coach I ever had said to me, let's make it better than the way we found it. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Craig Watanabe, for coming on today's show to share his invaluable insights and very practical takeaways on how firms can enhance their cybersecurity controls. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for a Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 